The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Didn't the Cold War end 20 years ago? Wasn't it game over for communism? Wasn't it liberal democracy that won? Wasn't that the end of history? You might very well think that, but two dictators are shaking hands today in Uzbekistan who between them control the lives of one and a half billion people and almost 20% of the Earth's surface. And neither of them are answerable to anyone. And both Vladimir Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China think their systems are better than ours, more decisive, more controlled, not led astray by the whims of fickle voters. And they're keen to expand too with their armies in Ukraine and possibly Taiwan, democracies now threatened by dictatorships. And do they have a point? Are our vacillating populist politicians failing to deliver? Who's going to win this battle of arms and ideas? Welcome to Cold War 2. That's this week's show. The Why Curve. So there we are. What is the prospect of a Cold War, which this does seem to be turning mm. into a hot war, and, and that's the fear, because we have two autocracies, very powerful, um, huge numbers of people, vast amounts of parts of, yeah. of the Earth under their control, and they don't seem to play by the same rules. Yeah, yeah and, and even if it doesn't turn into a hot war, is it just going to... I mean, the, the point about a Cold War is, isn't it, that there's a situation they don't see an end to. Yeah. And oh, right now, I don't think anyone has an idea about how this will end. No, there's lots of speculation, of course, because of what's been happening in Ukraine very recently, but, but maybe that's just going to go to another form of stalemate. So, again, and then China, Taiwan, a lot of parallels drawn potentially with what's happening in Ukraine, what could happen in Taiwan, and fears of where that might all lead us. And it's a fascinating subject just to see where the politics of this part of the 21st century are actually going, because we have the history, we, we know what we used to do. We don't really know how we handle this. And I, I wonder whether actually the West is uh, playing its part in trying to find a, a real solution to this. So we are we're very quick to call Russia and to an extent China the enemy. And, you know, and, and certainly, you know, Russia's behavior, you know, no one can condone that in any way whatsoever. No. But, you know, let's look at the way the West has behaved. And also let's look at the, the domination now in the world's financial systems that America has and the yeah. strength of the U.S. dollar and whether that needs to be broken down and control over financial systems. So, I mean, remember, Money early on. The root of all early, early on, we said, well, OK, we're going to impose sanctions. One of those sanctions is we're going to cut you out of, uh, you know, we're going to cripple you financially by, yeah. by cutting yeah. you out the, of uh, world, the, the world's financial system systems. and things like yeah. that. So, uh, you know, so we haven't behaved terribly well, perhaps. Well, let's find out what, what all this means, mm. where it is going uh, with someone who knows all about yeah, it. Yeah, let's talk to Dr. Natasha Kurt, who's Senior Lecturer in International Peace and Security at King's College London. She joins us now. So, Dr. Kurt, I mean, the issue is, I suppose, a renewed Cold War. It's not perhaps as ideological as it was, because uh, China doesn't seem that communist, let's face it, and uh, it seems to be more an issue of autocracy versus democracy. But is that the right way to see it? Um, I mean, on the face of it, it does seem like a very kind of neat division to make. Um, But I think that um, really when you look into things, um, there are far fewer democracies in the world than one might think at first glance. Um, so I would be wary of, you know, dividing things in that way. Um, and I think if you look at, you know, the UN and voting in the UN and so on, um, you know, there are often multiple reasons why um, certain countries might prefer to um, to be, if you like, neutral. Um, you know, so it's not necessarily always um, based on, you know, 
democratic values versus authoritarian values. So I think we need to be a bit careful there. So however it divides, I mean, it is a cold war, isn't it, that we're finding ourselves in? Is that um, a- I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily helpful to refer to it in that way. I mean, again, superficially, it might seem to be a cold war. But I mean, I think the other thing I'd um, remind us about is that in the Cold War, Russia and China were certainly not aligned, mm. uh, quite the opposite. Um, so in that sense, it's quite different. And in fact, you know, Russia was, um, you know, China was sort of in a way competing with Russia in some senses in parts of the third world at the time. But are they going to be strong allies this time, do you think? I mean, they, they, they're... Well, again, they're... you know, obviously I don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, you know, this is a relationship that's been evolving and developing from actually an incredibly low base. Let's remember since 1989 when uh, Gorbachev visited Beijing. Um, And so I think we do need to remember that it started at a very low base. And so um, they do have a very long border they had to demarcate that border. You know, that was the starting point, if you like. Um, And so these, in a way, you could argue, you know, it's sort of a necessary relationship. It's a mutually convenient relationship. Um, You know, if you've got a a border that's thousands of miles long, then it makes sense, you know, to be at peace with that neighbour and so on. Um, And there are complementarities in the economies. um, But I think that uh, Russia has become a lot more dependent on China than perhaps it would have liked yeah, um, it's but, a very unbalanced relationship, I think. Yes, it's and it's clearly. become more more unbalanced since 2014. Um, although, like I say, you know, I think we shouldn't, you know, we should remember that they did actually, uh, they were already um, in a quite a kind of strong relationship before 2014. Um, but I think Russia always uh, tried to kind of make it clear that it didn't want um, a sort of asymmetrical dependence on China. So what is it, um, what, is, what is it they want from each other then? If, if it's imbalanced and, and China wants more from, uh, sorry, Russia wants more from China than the other way around, what is it that they are well, giving each other? I think they kind of, um, in a way, mutually complement each other in the sense that, yes, Russia needs Chinese credits and loans, uh, which it can't get elsewhere. Um, and China can benefit from, you know, Russia's kind of, in a way, it can kind of almost use Russia as cover sometimes, you know, because Russia is much more, as we know, prone to, um, you know, kind of belligerent um, rhetoric um, around particularly US Western behavior. Um, And Russia is also much more experienced diplomatically than China is. So I think it's been quite useful. And I think China likes to kind of watch and learn, if you like. That's where, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization comes in as well. That's been a very useful forum for, for China. Well, of course, that's the group that's actually meeting in, in Uzbekistan yeah. and, and, and they're, right. they're talking through this. I mean, I suppose one of the things that, that obviously was true of the old Cold War was that it was ideological. As you say, China yeah. and Russia were not on the same side, but they were both theoretically at least communist. China theoretically still is, but I don't think many people take that seriously. But they are... Uh, keen in a way to put the notion of the way they run their countries as something to be emulated. Uh, I mean, Putin has talked about a guided democracy, and, and Xi Jinping has certainly talked uh, about democracies uh, quite disparagingly, suggesting that they think there is, if you like, a competing ideology. Yeah, um, I mean, so I, I don't think that necessarily means that Russia and China are completely on the same page. Um, I think, um, 
in the Chinese case, um, you know, China is probably more a kind of nationalistic power than a communist power now. Um, you know, and Russia, of course, has also uh, started uh, to become much more nationalistic. Um, and I think, you know, they do both engage um, in a lot of anti-Western discourse, that's for sure. Mm. Um, but China will, you know, China will still need the West, I think, um, in a way that perhaps, uh, you know, Russia uh, doesn't as much. Um, you know, China um, needs um, kind of Western economic infrastructure and so on. So doesn't, um, doesn't that mean the West can, can use that as, as leverage through China against Russia, you know, to, to say to China, well, look, you know, the, the level of trade we're going to have is, is, is going to take a hammering if you continue to, to build this relationship with Russia because we really don't like them at all. Yeah, um, I mean, that's in practice not not necessarily that easy to do um, because China also obviously has um, cast its net quite wide and it has a lot of investments in Africa. Also, you know, it has Central Asia. Um, it has a lot of economic interests there. So it's not just about, you know, I mean, China does, I think, need the Western economic infrastructure, but, um, you know, I think... But they can move not, away from it's it, It's not as say. simple as, you know, the West yeah. just use this leverage... Yeah. I mean, we could find ourselves in another situation, couldn't we, where, where where we say, okay, well, let's play hardball with China, just as we're playing playing hardball with Russia, and we pay the consequences for it in a, in a big well, way. Yes, and I think that was the concern about around, uh, for example, Liz Truss. You know that um, mm. she seemed to be kind of not really taking into account um, the extent to yeah. which actually we might need China um, ourselves. We'll add that to the list of things to be concerned well, about, Liz Truss about them. Yeah, yeah. well, the, which is a long one. But, but isn't there also an issue here with, with sort of realisation that I feel's grown in the last, well, I suppose six months or so particularly, but before that as well, that actually we'd been poddling along dealing with Russia and China uh, as sort of normal countries with whom we could all mm. get involved on in various levels. And then a sudden realisation that actually things are being done under the surface yes. on both sides that, that we, we can't really work with in a sense that this is a chasm of understanding of what a nation state is and how it should behave and therefore that we can't do ordinary business with Yes, them. I think that, uh, that's true to, to a certain extent. Um, I, think, I think the problem is often, um, and that doesn't relate only to Russia and China but maybe to other areas as well, um, you know, if we think about Iraq 2003, for example, I think there is that kind of enduring problem, you know, perhaps even more in the United States and Western Europe, but of wanting, um, you know, to sort of see our own image uh, reflected back to us, you know, so with Iraq, you know, the idea of, you know, Iraq becoming this beacon of democracy, you know, um, mm. you know, the kind of rollout of um, democracy across the Middle East and so on, and kind of not really quite understanding what's really going on and kind of just wishful thinking about wanting um, these countries to become, you know, liberal democracies in the same mould as us. Yeah, you um, can't bomb them back to democracy. Is, was, yeah, was I mean, obviously it's not a question of bombing Russia to democracy, but, you know, there was that whole, I mean, and this isn't to say that we are to blame for it, but I think it can blind you to certain things perhaps and to means that you stop looking inside that society, um, you know, for... Um, you know, the kind of um, peculiarities, if you like, of, of that particular society. And Yeah, and yet we, we saw Russia as becoming more Western, didn't we? I well, mean, yes, you and know, again, I think that does, you know, so that whole um, 
it was called kind of transitology, I suppose, you know, the idea that, you know, it was the end of history when the Berlin Wall fell. I mean, I'm simplifying this, but, you know, the idea that, you know, all of these countries fought in the former Soviet bloc and so on, and including, you know, uh, what was the former Soviet Union and including the Russian Federation, um, you know, the continuous state, um, that they were all going to just kind of transition in a kind of neat linear way towards um, a liberal... Wearing Levi jeans and eating McDonald's, you know, that yeah, was... Well, which they did. That, I think that's the problem thing, isn't it? You know, you can wear Levi yeah. jeans and eat McDonald's, but it doesn't make you a liberal democracy. Is there an issue about the rules-based international systems? I've heard that phrase used a lot, the idea that, that there is a certain way of doing things, which we've got used to, and even in a sense, I suppose, felt the Soviets played along with that, mm. but that Putin doesn't do that. For example, you know, he mm. poisons his enemies in Salisbury or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and the Chinese don't play the game either because they build infrastructure and then uh, find ways to steal data and steal ideas. So a sense that they're just not playing the game. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there there is very much um, that sense. But I think, and again, this isn't to, to agree with it, but, you know, in Russia for quite a long time now, um, you know, there's been this idea that actually the West has not been playing by the rules. Therefore, it's OK, you know, for them not to play by the rules, you know, so they would cite, for example, Kosovo in 1999, you know, that was a huge thing in Russia, you know, the fact that um, intervention took place without the authorization of the UN Security Council, and it was a huge thing uh, for China as well, you know, and the fact that the intervention was undertaken by NATO and was, in their eyes, an out-of-area operation, you know, um, so kind of using force um, to... Conduct yeah. we, we bombed action. the Chinese consulate in Belgrade, well, I remember. Yes, you know, so it's a much bigger thing for them than I think people realise, which, again, doesn't obviously justify, um, you know, any kind of aberrant behaviour on their part. But that's a tremendously risky situation to be in where neither side trusts the other to obey the rules. I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's huge. Well, that, isn't, that, isn't that a Cold War? I mean, you know, I know you didn't like the term with Cold War, but I think the reason why, you know, it, it's, it's an easy label at the moment is because a Cold War was just that, wasn't it? There was mistrust with spies yeah, and espionage. Yeah, mistrust, but we did have a certain kind of infrastructure for um, communicating, I suppose, you know, the hotline and so on and... Um, so you think we're in a worse situation than we were in the in the Cold well, War? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, I'd, you know, it's difficult to say. I mean, when, I, when we say we, obviously, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of parts of the world, you know, where conflicts are going on now, um, not just in Ukraine, for example. Um, you know, so I think it's difficult to say whether it's better or worse, but it's, it's certainly different. And I think there is, a, I mean, you know, there are far more nation states now, that, of course, than there were during the Cold War. Um you know, and I think there there is a big swathe of countries that are neither necessarily, you know, autocratic or maybe completely democratic. Um, and countries like Turkey, Iran, for example, that kind of have to sort of balance a, a bit, um, well, certainly Turkey, you know, between, um, you know, the West and Russia. Is there um, is there also an element of them saying, uh, you get this sense sometimes, that actually our system is better. I've, I've heard it, for example, from Xi Jinping talking about uh, the ways in which China can work um, more effectively, faster, more decisively, because there isn't this structure of appealing to voters once every five years or whatever. And they could sell that idea to a lot of these countries you're talking about and say, actually, it's better, it's more effective, it's economically more effective, because you can plan for longer ahead. You don't have to worry about mm. pleasing electors. 
Mm. But then you look at the Soviet uh, era, and uh, planning didn't work terribly well there. I mean, you know, no, it was, no, it not was... really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it's very much but it is an, ide- an ideology of a kind, and, and, and maybe some countries would warm to that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more a question of, you know, there being perhaps pre-existing uh, issues, for example, with Western countries, rather than it being that, you know, they, there is a particular attraction to Russia or China, for example. You know, I don't think that Russia actually has really much, if any, soft power attractiveness um you know so it's more about um you know there being pre-existing maybe animosities or uh, well i mean if you look at america and trump and if you look at uh, britain and brexit and people might might well take lessons from that and say it's not a great advertisement for but, well i mean you mentioned nationalism before and i mm-hmm. wonder whether you know this is part and parcel of it all because we've seen that here obviously in the uk where brexit was uh, which has obviously been such an overwhelming success for it that was uh, that was driven by <laughs> He's yeah. smirking in case you wondered uh, <laughs> but i mean that was driven by nationalism wasn't it that you know those those those, those nasty foreigners who are taking you unpopulism taking away our jobs and uh, we want to go back to how things were in the olden days when uh, yes. life was so much better yeah. i mean is there a bit of that that's driving you know russia can't leave the eu obviously but it can try and you know claim back some of the territory from uh, from the good old days is is that part and parcel of where you know where putin's head is and maybe some of the the population of russia that seem to be behind him uh yeah i mean i think it's been kind of moving in that direction for quite some time and you can even trace some of it back probably to the yeltsin years so um i think it's been evolving for some time and it's you know i mean in china as well obviously you know, nationalism provides a certain kind of uh, legitimacy. Well, well, the Taiwan issue is the key in that, isn't yeah. it? It seems some yeah. people think Xi Jinping is bigging that up because of the current economic slowdown in China. Is, well, that, a, that, is that a relationship? But then, the economic slowdown was the point I was going to make because we started the century off and everyone was, you know, doing quite well. Uh, you know, the GDP per capita in Russia was increasing like uh, like most places. And in the last 10 years, we've basically been at or close to stagnation almost everywhere. And that's why we're starting to see this uh, dissatisfaction amongst yes. the public yeah. and the, the need to do something which is, you know, hence the rise of populism. Is this this just another form of uh, uh, this is Putin's populism let's go and invade the country yeah. that we used to well, hold. I'd say he was more nationalistic rather than populist um, mm. I don't see him you know um, so much as a pop- well he doesn't have to win elections very much no. and if you disagree with him you disappear out your hotel window yeah, so, I mean, obviously uh, yeah. populism and nationalism are related yeah but I mean mm. I think you know if you look at for example the annexation of Crimea in 2014 you know he at time, you know, at times the justification was based on kind of international legal arguments, and you know, he even you know quoted verbatim parts of the Quebec um, ruling. You know, um, and he know, you know, he'd obviously been looking at um, also the ruling on Kosovo of the International Court of Justice and so on. You know, um, but then at other times um, he seemed to resort to purely historic kind of argument, you know, emotional arguments. You know. Um, that this has always been, you know, historic uh, Russian, sacred Russian territory and so on and so forth. So, um, but, you know, that's also part of the parcel of it because the idea was that, for example, you know, with the US 
um, intervention in Iraq, you know, that the kind of justifications for that intervention just kind of, you know, changed all the time. You know, one minute it was humanitarian intervention, one minute it was, you know, upholding the authority of the UN Security Council. Se- you know. Seeking weapons of mass destruction yeah. that weren't there. So, you know, they're kind of in a way saying, Yabu sucks to you. Uh, does it really matter? Because if a great power doesn't really have to justify why they're doing anything. Um, and it's saying we're all the same in a way. It's a kind of cynicism exactly. of saying. It's, a very, it's very, very cynical. And it's basically saying, you know, a superpower or a great power, you know, can lay down the law to others. Essentially, that's the definition. So does that mean, do you think that the that, that autocracies, powerful autocracies like Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China are actually very strong in themselves? I mean, are they are they at risk of falling apart? Are we just seeing the, the surface, which they show to us, and actually underneath they're quite weak? Or are they genuinely strong, perhaps stronger than democracies? Mm. Well, I mean, I probably wouldn't lump China and Russia together. Um, I mean, it depends what, what we really mean here by, by strong. Um, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of internal contradictions in China, and there's a lot of uh, like disparity between the different regions and so on in China. They've got the Uyghur problem as well, um, you know. So, so, and I think they also have the problem of legitimacy of the Communist Party, you know. And I think resorting constantly to nationalism is quite dangerous. That's always a dangerous ploy, really, for any regime because it can always backfire, you know, or you can lose control of the nationalist kind of narrative, if you like, um, you know, because already they kind of, you know, you kind of get sort of sometimes, you know, the population in China is almost more nationalistic than the regime. Um, and I think that's also, you know, potentially a problem in, in Russia, you know, so it's the extent to which if you mobilise nationalism, the extent to which you can keep control of it. So, but it, it, I mean, it seems to be working in Russia, doesn't it? In that, in that Putin well, is... It seems to be, but I mean, we're still really, the war hasn't really been going on for that long, you know. Yeah. And there are setbacks and many people suggesting yeah, and that... it's a massive country. And so, mm. again, it's difficult to generalise because, you know, younger people um, will by and large maybe be more supportive of the war, but then also people in urban centres as well. Probably so there's a question more, about uh, sorry, younger people would be less supportive of the war. Sorry, and yeah, yeah, urban uh, population um, as well would probably be less supportive usually. Well, do we do we know that for a fact, or because I mean, of course, those you know those younger people, I guess they can get their news from elsewhere, but by and large, the news has been locked down, and it's a, a very powerful weapon, isn't it? So I don't know how if we look at opinion polls like the Levada Center in in, mm. in Moscow, I don't know, you know, they do research, which you know surprisingly shows yeah, that Putin some, is someone enormously- comes down the road with with a clipboard and asks you, do you like Putin? in, in the uh, village yeah. in Russia, yeah. I, I don't think many people are going to yeah, say otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. Well, can you stand near the window while yeah, we ask you this question? You also question? don't want to be sent to prison for treason. Um, yeah. 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 So, so we don't really know, actually. Well, one, one question think. they did ask, which was perhaps is, which mm. you could because, yes, I mean, Putin has gone in popularity from an approval rating of 60% last year, which is actually quite low. So it's gone up to 80%. Now, that might be because a lot of people have disappeared, you know, since those questions have asked. But they also asked the question about whether they've got a, a, a negative attitude to the US. That's that that's increased from 40% to 70%. I mean, you could mm. answer either way to that one, I guess. But the other question was whether they should, uh, whether they should be trying to reach a diplomatic solution on this 
war or whether they should just carry on. And on on that, the population was pretty split 50-50 between, mm. you know, and that's a, that's a question you can ask people and they can have an opinion and it's not necessarily right or wrong as far as the regime is concerned. Yeah, but uh, it would probably maybe be a diplomatic solution on Russian terms. Well, yes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like you said, these opinion polls, you know, at the moment I think it's very difficult to really gauge... And that will be true of China as well. I imagine that, that yeah. again, we don't really know what Chinese people or Russian people think, do we? Uh, no, but I mean, you know, there are, you know, people have relatives, for example, within Russia. I, don't, I know a bit less about China, you know, and you can kind of gauge from them, you know, what people are saying, you know, behind closed doors and so on. Um, so so what's, your, what's your take yeah, on what, that? What then? do you hear from that? Well, I mean, it's kind of, obviously, it's going to be a bit anecdotal, isn't it? But, you know, I can just give you the example of my, of a former PhD student of mine who lives in Moscow and, um, you know, lives with um, their parents um, and the PhD student, you know, is has a very different view of, of the war than, than they do. Um, the pa- parents are, you know, much older, um, you know, already 60 maybe. They watch, they consume Russian television and they get all their news pretty much from there. Um, you know, whereas my former student, um, you know, gets their news, um, you know, from... Well, social media, I imagine. Yeah, they have a VPN or whatever, and, you know, but also YouTube channels. There are a lot of YouTube channels um, that Russians can watch, which have alternative, you know, which have independent media on, because obviously independent media has all been closed down now, but they've resorted to YouTube a lot. Right, so the older population are, are are largely supportive there. This gets back to my uh, my Brexit analogy, doesn't it? Really, well, it <laughs> would be the case here. The so people sitting there watching TV and believing everything they're yeah. being told. And I suppose the, the, the issue that comes out of all this is given, you know, we don't know in much detail, at least uh, not, not testable detail, what people think inside Russia or China. And we don't know the stability of those regimes, as we've already yeah. said. Is the risk then of a Cold War, if that's what we can call it, turning into a hot war that much worse? Because, uh, as you say, Xi Jinping looks to perhaps Taiwan in the same way that Putin looks towards Ukraine. That's very simplistic, but there's an element of truth to that. And the risk that in either of those cases, it actually could get to the point where the West is driven, US presumably and the front of it, to actually fighting. Because this. what happens if nothing happens? If we're, if we're in exactly the same position in a year's time, what, mm. what happens? What, 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 where does the movement come from to, to try and end this or to escalate it if, the, if that's what's necessary to end it? Yeah, um, uh, I, I don't really... Uh, not completely in agreement on the Taiwan thing, by the way, but um, because I think... You, you see that as very different, do you? Well, I see it as... Well, I think that Xi Jinping may be watching what's happening in Ukraine, but, you know, he may be drawing lessons from it and seeing, you know, mm. the West is actually a lot more united than could have been foretold. Um, and, um, you know, the strength of the sanctions, I think, has been quite... Uh, Surprising to so Ukraine could actually be be making it less likely that there will be exactly yes, but all you know. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can completely rule out obviously China taking trying to take back Taiwan, but you know it's quite a different situation territorially as well. You know, um, but it would be it would certainly be a relief. But but on the on the Russia Ukraine situation, I mean, how does that end? Oh well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I mean, um, how does it end? Well, I mean. My what my fear is that it's just going to carry on for a number of years because just because you know Russia has had some setbacks and so on doesn't mean that it can't 
you know, continue um, fighting to the end and throwing, um, you know, people at it. Um, I mean, I know that people say, oh, you know, Russians are going to get tired of it and, um, you know, they won't want to sacrifice um, their soldiers, but actually they're giving them very high rates of pay, much, you know, much higher than normal salary. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a poor region of Russia and there are a lot of poor regions, then, you know, it's an attractive option. But some people have made the analogy that the two dates get thrown around 1916 or 1942 in terms of what's going on and the consequences. 1916, where the Russian army collapsed and that led to huge political change. 1942, where they managed to hold the line. Mm. Which of those do you think we're in? Yeah, I mean, it's probably more somewhere in between, you know, because, um, you know, the state of the army is not necessarily as bad as it was in 1916. Um but, you know, morale, I think the question of morale obviously is key. Um, so, you know, they could just lose morale completely and, you know, they could just be mass desertions and so on. Uh, and that might see the fall now, of Putin. Most of the soldiers are on contracts rather than um, being, you know, conscripted. Um, and so it also depends on whether Russia will, you know, engage in mass mobilisation. And that's the thing that's difficult to to know, you know, because I think they've been very reluctant to do that. Uh, and do they do they become more nationalistic? I mean, that's that that's the danger, isn't it? And they they get behind Putin, and uh, you know the the diplomacy that we've seen. I mean, that's already breaking down, isn't it? You know, those we talked about it early on in this this yeah. discussion that at least we had uh, diplomacy during the Cold War, and, yeah. and perhaps we're seeing the, the less hotline of that. that was always very famously available yeah. in case of nuclear so threat. An, yeah. So an isolated Russia closes up more, becomes more nationalistic. It's got less to lose in in a way. Well, yes, I mean, in a way. Um, you know, once they've gone down this path, I mean, there is a certain kind of logic, yes, to to these kinds of, um, you know, nationalistic wars, if you like. Um, and obviously, you know, a regime that doesn't really care about its population, doesn't really, isn't held accountable for anything, um, then, of course, they can, in theory, just fight, you know. One of the advantages of autocracy. And there's no, and there's no Mikhail Gorbachev waiting in the wings, is there? No, so there's no sort of... that we really know of. Um, mm. So in the end, so in I mean, the, the, the answer, answer to the question of is this a new Cold War is, is well, possibly, but we don't know. But the issue is, is this going to turn into something worse? Your bet is probably not. Well, it, we're going to be status quo. Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, in a way we are. I mean, we're just looking at it from the point of view of the West versus Russia. But in a way, um, you know, that does a disservice to Ukraine because I think, you know, Putin very much likes to present this as a, a proxy war between Russia and the West. Right. Um, you know, but it, we're already there's already a hot war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, although obviously Russia likes to call it a special military operation. And I think we shouldn't forget that there is already a hot war, you know, and we shouldn't let the fear of it spreading somehow to the West. Um you know, deter us from continuing to support Ukraine, even if it means the downfall of of, of Putin, perhaps, and there, and perhaps the uh, arrival of someone even worse, someone uh, even well, more nationalistic. Uh, well, yes, that's the, the the problem I think with the kind of wishful thinking around you know uh, Putin, uh, you know, leaving or being ousted or dying or what have you. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the um, replacement will be you know, more moderate, for example. 
Well, do you know what, Natasha? We came to you hoping that you'd have an answer. That we'd, uh, <laughs> that you'd, you'd, that today we'd solve the whole situation. But I mean, it's. I, I mean, that I mean, it's, you, what you're saying is what we're all thinking, isn't it? This is a senseless war with no end in sight. And also the yeah. fact that we don't know. There's so much we don't know about the structures and the the internal views of, of either of those parties that we were talking about. Yes, I mean, to some extent, um, you know, one that that part of it is perhaps akin to the Cold War in the sense that it's mm. more difficult mm. now, um, oh. you know, to sort of um, second guess what really is happening. Right. Well, we'll leave it there. I know a million miles uh, from uh, from fighting in uh, Ukraine. You've you've got to go off and play tennis, which sounds a much <laughs> sounds much, a lot better. Much better way of spending your time. Similarities in some ways, <laughs> um, knocking things back and forth. But Dr. Kett, yeah. thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating no, discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks. So next week, uh, well, we are definitely going to be talking politics next we week because in theory it is the Labour Party conference. Well, but- things are going to resume because we almost mm. had a period where normal politics was suspended. Yeah. Uh, but coming after that, we are into conference season. Mm. Uh, Labour is the first big one to kick off. The Lib Dems had to sort of postpone theirs because yeah. of events. Um, and a big question about Labour Party politics, really, because is this an administration in waiting under Keir Starmer that could actually get into power in 2024. Uh, we have a, had a very unpopular Conservative administration, change of leader. Not quite sure how popular she is, mm. but is well, Labour ready? a good idea, haven't we? Well, I mean, the vast majority of people didn't vote for her, but I mean, maybe she... a bit she, of a bounce, I think she has. Yeah, I mean, let's see how people she People like the fact that, 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 that she is putting money in the, in the place of helping people deal with their energy bills, but of course, mm. that was a Labour idea to begin with, which is yeah. basically freezing the bills. So, uh, a sense is... They're not particularly keen on the idea that that the uh, that the money comes from uh, from the public purse we, rather than a windfall yeah. tax from those companies, which is what Labour wanted. So there, there is clear blue water, no question about that. Mm. But the issue is, what about the confidence in the Labour Party at this point? It's a clear moment where they've got to show that they could take this on. Keir Starmer isn't desperately popular mm. um, or enigmatic. He's en- well, he's certainly that. <laughs> um, so we're going to find we're going to really find out how well set Labour is to take all this on and potentially to become the next government. Yeah, can Labour win in 2024? That's next week on the Y Curve. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening this week. The Y Curve.